Good morning. Welcome. Yes, my name's Douglas. Uh, I'm from New Spring. Uh, it's been my pleasure to serve there for the last couple of years, and uh, it is indeed an honour and a privilege to be here. Uh, is anyone not familiar with what's going on at Kalamunda Church of Christ? <laughs> Have you been away on holidays? Maybe you've just come back. Um, but uh, just the ability and the, the willingness of our church to come and serve you is such an honour, and uh, I just want to thank you for the welcome that we've received and uh, just hope that you're being blessed through this process as you uh, seek out a new senior pastor, um, someone who will take you into a new season. You know, 2020 isn't just the start of a new year, it's the start of a new decade, but it is also marked by a new season. Uh, I just have the sense that God is moving again in his church, and one of the things I love about what's going on here is that display of the oneness that is in the body of Christ. For all those who are baptised, into Christ Jesus, we come into one body, just as uh, Kayla was describing this this morning. And uh, in a very small way, this is being represented here by both New Spring and Kalamunda Church of Christ. And it's just a real, uh, just it's great to see. It's a privilege to be a part of. So um, be blessed. Uh, we're carrying on in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, the reason we're doing this is, you know, it seems that we can get very familiar with Scripture and who Jesus is and then suddenly discover that we don't know him at all. <laughs> is anyone like that? <laughs> You're reading passages of Scripture that you think you've known for so long and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just opens your eyes. And it's not the like you had it wrong or maybe your, your interpretation of it went a little wry, but the richness of the Word and the Holy Spirit and the way he comes and reveals himself in greater glory and majesty, there is always greater depths and wonders to the person of Christ to be discovered. And it is the Gospel and Jesus Christ that is the centre of the church. It's his church. It's his uh, church that he is building and we are his people and uh, thank the Lord that the church doesn't rest on me, it doesn't rest on you, it doesn't rest on any particular person or pastor but it rep rests on the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a good thing? Amen. So he said he will build his church, we just have to be willing to follow along with his plan and his purpose and his ways of doing things and that means we probably have to let go sometimes of the things that we think um, the way it ought to be uh, the way things ought to operate. And the only way we really get to come to understand that is by getting into his word and helping uh, with the Holy Spirit to understand once again what he is doing because uh, God is never standing still. He is uh, always active. So I'm going to be taking you through the second half of the introduction or the prologue to Mark's Gospel, verses 9 to 15 this morning. Are you ready to get into some scripture? Yeah, all right, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we honour you in this house. We give you all the glory. We thank you for the word that you have given us. We thank you for the way in which you have preserved the scripture, this holy writ, that somehow you inspired men of God to record the things that they had witnessed and through it we get to witness once again the power of your presence, that you are indeed alive and well. And Lord, have your way in this house. May you make yourself known to your people. Lord, you know them. They're your children. And I humbly ask that you would just use my words 
and make them your words, that you would put your words into my mouth, that they would become alive and active in the hearts of everyone here, whatever their need, whatever their struggle, whatever their hearts are crying out for, that you will indeed meet them and answer them today. For you are one who comes with a word in season for those who are weary. You come as the refresher of our souls. You come as our helper and our standby. And I'm so grateful for the work that you're about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. You know, I was loving it just in the communion. I don't know if I'm pretty sure it was little Grace that was calling out to her daddy. And uh, it just warmed my heart. We are children of God. You know, and when you turn and you humble yourself and you just cry out, Daddy, I don't know, who's a dad in the house? (laughs) You know what it's like when you have that little child turn to you and just call out your name and say, Daddy. (laughs) There's something that you can't help but just be overwhelmed with a love for the one that's crying out to you. That's the same for all of us. The Father's heart for you, the love of the Father is something we really fail to grasp. It, it is almost something that is so good that we can't even... It's hard to receive at times because you're thinking, is he really that good? Are you really that good, Father? If you're wondering what song I wanted to finish with, Good, Good Father, do you know it? <laughs> uh, see how flexible you are? <laughs> um, but I, I, I hope that part of this morning is that you actually have a change of perspective. That you see the goodness of God. And that is reflected in who Jesus is. Because Jesus says, if you know me, you know the Father. But it always comes down to that question, who is Jesus? This is what the Gospel of Mark, perhaps more than others, it's one of those distinctives that at every turn he is confronting us with that very question. Who do you say Jesus is? It's right at the heart of the gospel, that pivot point. In chapter 8, when the disciples are there and he's gone out to Caesarea Philippi and he turns around and says, who do the people say I am? And they say to him, well, you're the prophet Elijah. Some say you're some a prophet of old. And then Jesus says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? You know, I think everyone at some point is going to have to face up and answer that question for themselves. There's not a man or person who's walked the earth that is more significant than Jesus. The claims he makes for everyone on this planet to be the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way you get access to the Father, that he died on a cross and was raised again and he reigns, who do you say Jesus is? He asks it of his disciples All throughout this gospel, he's asking everyone who witnessed him, his ministry and heard his teaching, he's essentially asking, who do you say I am? He asked it of the people whom Mark wrote to, posing that same question. And here we are 2,000 years on, and once again, that question confronts us, who do you say Jesus is? So in the prologue of gospel, Mark makes this explicit declaration about the identity and mission of Jesus. The rest of the gospel... He may be presented in secrecy and paradox, but here there is an unambiguous claim as to who Jesus is. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, appointed to bring about Yahweh's redemptive plan, not just for Israel, but for all of creation. He is Lord of all. You realize that? He reigns. 
There is none beside him. He rules and reigns and is Lord of all. And yet it seems that it is easy for us to miss in this 21st century Western society because the reality is the majority of people are actually somewhat biblically illiterate. You know, we read this and there's so much of the allusion to the Old Testament in Mark and yet it, we kind of gloss over it because we are not necessarily familiar with the story or God's story throughout the Old Testament. And I uh, am, uh, I'll freely confess that about a year and a half ago, I was just as woefully ignorant of how rich this gospel is and how much I didn't understand of the Old Testament. And, you know, I actually did study for a number of years at a seminary <laughs> and discovered that, you know, you cannot see the trees for the forests, or the forest for the trees. Because we become very good at looking at particulars and details and breaking things down, but there seems to be something that's amiss, that we've missed the story of God throughout history. And one of the amazing things that happens when you are baptized into Christ, yes, you are baptized into one body. Yes, we are made by one, uh, one in, in, by the Holy Spirit. But we are also engrafted into his story, which is embedded in the story of Israel. And you're going to discover that there's a lot about uh, Jesus that if you don't understand the story of Israel, you're really not going to understand the significance of who Jesus is. And you'll probably read this prologue and think, yeah, that sounded good and have no idea <laughs> what was there. I mean, I, I'm just amazed at how much can be packed into just a few verses. Mark is incredibly economical, but he is incredibly rich in the things that he is pointing to. So I hope that this morning you get to discover a new understanding that I might open your eyes just a little to the amazing nature of this book. The book itself is not what we worship, but it does bear witness and point to the one whom we worship and the way in which it continues to bring life and healing and restoration and salvation to me is just such an extraordinary thing. There's nothing like it. So, verses 9 to 16 um, is the second half. And, and just a couple of comments about the introduction also. This is not just an introduction like an introduction to the book. I know Dave has talked about this before, but the prologue uh, in Old Testament times, in ancient times, was to inform you about the content and the way in which and the framework with which the author wanted you to read his text. And so in this, we have his purpose, Mark's purpose, is to frame it in such a way that you understand the context that he's bringing to his gospel. And there's a very clever and intelligent and Holy Spirit-filled scholar called Ricky Watts, who I admire and love. He's one of the guys that I have learned from uh, by distance through his books and his audio teachings. But I think he was so on the money when uh, just the way in which he shows Mark's gospel is embedded in this Exodus, New Exodus story of Israel and particularly the way Isaiah 40 to 66 is framed. Now, I'm not going to explain that to you today. It's taken me a long time to get my head around how that works. But I just want you to know that there is a New Exodus story going on when God speaks to the people in Babylon who are in exile and wondering where has God gone and yet the prophets come and speak and so there's a cry from the heart of the prophets saying, Lord, come and do it again. 
That's what a new exodus is looking for. They know what God was like back in the exodus. They know the power to which he came and the, and the mighty hand that delivered them from the, the oppression of Pharaoh. And yet in Isaiah, he starts to present essentially a new exodus, a hope of a new return of God, that he would do it afresh as they are in exile in, in Babylon, having been taken off their land. So today we're looking at a closer, we're just taking a closer look at verses 9 to 15 and this can essentially be broken down into two parts, Uh, at least in my view. You've got three different stories there. You've got the baptism of Jesus, you've got the temptation in the wilderness and then you've got his beginning of his ministry. But those first two really speak into Jesus' identity and the function and the anointing that comes from heaven uh, to help you understand who he is and something of what he's about to do. And then we have the proclamation, which is the heart and the centre of what he came to proclaim and to do on earth. So, if you're ready, chapter 1, I'm going to read through the whole, whole prologue, and then we'll get into the particulars of this verse. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wide animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. What a fascinating opening. You know, John is being presented, if you were here last week or if you managed to hear the podcast, David was talking about how John the Baptist is being identified as the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke. That one would be in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of Yahweh, the Lord. Anytime you see the Lord in capitals in the English Bibles, it's actually the the way of indicating to you that it's that holy name, Yahweh, that is being used in the original Hebrew. And so here is John the Baptist being presented as the one who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And he's crying out the wilderness, a baptism of repentance for people to prepare their hearts. And it recalls the day that Malachi spoke of, that great and terrible day when the Lord would come. And in that spirit of Elijah, he would send someone to prepare them and turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers, lest he come and strike the land with a curse and destruction. 
And so here's John the Baptist suddenly appearing in the wilderness after 400 years of silence. Apparently there was not a prophet that spoke again after Malachi. And Israel, although their great hopes in the prophetic utterances of the prophets saying there will come a new exodus were returned to their land, and although they were able to rebuild the walls, and although they were able to rebuild the temple, yet the glory of the God did not return, and they did not see the promised uh, king return to the throne, the one that was made to David, about an offspring would come from him and reign forevermore. So for f- almost 500 years, they're wondering, what's going on? Where is the Lord? Has he forgotten us? Can you imagine what it would have been like to know that there was a prophet in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way for Yahweh? This is just a dramatic moment. And then it gets to this cusp where he says, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 9, who comes on the scene? It's Jesus. People are expecting God to come. And here Mark is saying, here comes Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. Now the reference alone to Nazareth in Galilee is astonishing in of itself because Isaiah early in his gospel is talking about the coming one who would rule and reign. Who's, you know, the, um, if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you'll know verses 6 and 7 of this passage, but it begins by saying, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now you may not know what that is, but that's part of the tribes that are allocated in the north, and it just so happens that Nazareth is one of the towns in that region, and Galilee includes and encompasses that region. So if you're looking east, you have the Sea of Galilee, and then you have Nazareth in the mountains, and these where the allocation of the tribes, and this is what he's talking about, this region that even though it was, they were brought into contempt, yet in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And he goes on to prophesy that for us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We haven't even got into verses 9 and 15 really and already you can sense the anticipation that Mark is presenting and he actually assumed that his readers would have some understanding of this. So here he is being coming on the scene and people are expecting Yahweh to return and Jesus rocks up. What an incredible moment. There are other passages in Isaiah that talk about going up to a high mountain, O herald of good news to Zion. Lift up your voice with strength, O herald of good news to Jerusalem. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him, whose reward is with him and his recompense before him. All this echoing in the ears of the people who have been holding on generation for generation, wondering where is God, and here he comes. Jesus. The good news that Isaiah proclaims in 52 verse 7, 
How beautiful upon the mountain of the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the return of Yahweh to Jerusalem, spoken of, which is also spoken of as Zion. And the God of Zion, the God of Israel comes and God reigns. So much of what Isaiah declares is God's reign, God's rule, God's redemptive plan. And we have it being represented, I guess, or being seen in this one person, Jesus, Jesus from Galilee. It's a remarkable statement that Mark is making, unambiguously making, that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is somehow Yahweh that's come to bring salvation. So just as all the allusions of John the Baptist to the prophets of old and the promise of the Yahweh to come, you can see that we arrive with Jesus and this baptismal scene and how much is being represented or fulfilled in Christ's appearance. Now, this baptism also has three particular events. It has the rending of the heavens. It has the Spirit coming down and resting upon him, which from what I understand in the Greek is, is like it comes into Jesus, it abides in him. And then the voice from heaven opening up and saying, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Perhaps you've never heard this before in this particular way, but when I discovered how much of this was again <laughs> referring back to things like Psalm 2 verse 7, the prophet Isaiah and other places, I just found it astonishing. And I just want to uh, just unpack that a little for you. Because we have this tearing of the heavens, indicating the supernatural dimension of the truth about to be proclaimed about Jesus. The descent of the Spirit marking Jesus as the anointed one to bring good news and confirming the divine presence and power in his life and for his mission. And the voice of God echoing so many Old Testament messianic themes, commissioning Jesus to undertake the God-given role and more importantly, identify him as the Son of God. As Mark had done right in verse 1 saying the beginning of the gospel of Christ, the Son of God. So what is this first of revelations, this tearing of the heavens? Well, in that time that they were in the Exodus land, the prophet is speaking into this time of exile and he's looking over Zion and he's seeing the wilderness and he's seeing the desolation of Jerusalem and his heart's breaking and he's crying out, O Lord, that you would rend the heavens. He's crying out because when the Lord's glory left the temple, it was like he not only left, but he shut up the heavens. He's gone and has he forgotten his people? And then the rest of this passage makes the reference to the exodus out of Egypt and it's that cry that God would come and do it again. And so he ends the chapter in Isaiah with this cry, Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? The exile was so traumatic for various reasons but perhaps the most devastating for them was this idea that the glory of God had lifted and departed from them and the heavens been closed off. And as I said, when the last prophet Malachi spoke, it had been 400 years. But can you see that the rending of the heavens, this is like a tearing open. It's almost like God is not just opening it up. He's making a promise that never again will I shut the heavens over my people. Can you see it? So the rending of the heavens, and then as the heavens open up, 
it opens up the supernatural dimension of truth that is about to be pronounced about Jesus. And Jesus sees, or John the Baptist sees, it's not really clear who's seeing it. Perhaps there was a witness to the people who were there, but the Spirit descends and rests on him like a dove. And so we have these allusions to scriptures like Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, that first being, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stump of Jesse. Everyone know who Jesse is? Any guess? David's father. So out of the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and a might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So we have a reference to Jesse, we have a reference to David, and even though it's not explicit, that ought to prick up your ears. Because in 2 Samuel 7, when David had united the kingdom, he had conquered Jerusalem and made it the political and geographical capital of Israel, and he had retrieved the Ark of the Covenant, making it also the centre of worship, he decides that he's going to build God a house. And then through the prophet Nathan, God actually says, uh uh-uh. You're not going to build me a house. You're not my patron. I will build you a house. And in that promise, he talks about one day when he is gone to be with the fathers, he will raise up an offspring from his own, one that he will call a son and the son will be like a father to him and he will reign on the throne of David forever. This is the pinnacle, the climax of what we would call the historical narratives of Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Kings, Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And right here, this unconditional promise from God that he would raise up someone from David's line to reign forever. And so here we have in this passage, the one who comes from the stump of Jesse, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And you can see now, for those who would be familiar with their, old, their scriptures, because the, the Old Testament was their scripture. They didn't have the New Testament. It hadn't happened yet. <laughs> that was their word. That was how they shaped their understanding. It was something that they meditated on day and night. They would know and understand the things to which they pointed. We see it again in Isaiah 42. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Some of you may be familiar with this. It's recorded in Luke. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. Good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to release the prisoners from prison and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So all of a sudden you have the Spirit descending upon him and it identifies him as the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. It identifies him as the servant of the Lord. It identifies him as the anointed one, alluding to the promise, that Davidic promise that I've commented on. Key titles, key understandings. Who is this one all tied up and always being represented and displayed in Jesus himself by the Spirit coming upon him? And then we have the third revelation that's happening here, the voice from heaven. This is not just a commissioning for Jesus to undertake his role as the servant of the Lord, but it speaks directly to the heart of his identity as the Son of God. Although we're told 
We're not told who this voice is. It's very clear that this voice is coming from heaven and that it is God speaking. And what I love particularly about Mark, that is distinct from, I think, the Gospel of Matthew or Luke, is that in Matthew it says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, as if he's talking to the rest of the people. But in Mark, he's very deliberate. He says, you are my son. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's a direct and personal communication going on to Jesus himself that anchors and establishes identity before anyone knows who he is, before he does any work of ministry, before he utters a word. Jesus is anchored in the sonship of God right at this point as the voice speaks from heaven. It pronounces not just as as his son, but it also calls him the beloved son, just again as the prophet Isaiah wrote, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The link here shows that link between the one in whom God delights, the beloved, and the servant of the Lord. It also connects to Isaiah 49, which speaks that you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And if you read Isaiah 49, you'll know also there's the revelation that it is too light a thing for this one, the servant of the Lord, who's become an individual at this point. Because you will know also, if you know your scripture, that Israel has been called the servant of the Lord. That he is, it's too light a thing for him to go and call back the tribes of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, but he will become a light to the nations and he will make his, the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession and he will proclaim and salvation to the ends of the earth that it might reach the ends of the earth. So you can see just how pregnant verses 9 to 15 are. It's astonishing when you sit and you start reading just how this text comes up and when you hear those people walking onto the road to Emmaus wondering what had happened and Jesus comes alongside them This is a conversation, boy, I'd love to hear. (laughs) They're all downcast and sorrowful and Jesus rocks up. They don't even recognize him. And he says, what are you speaking about? And they say, don't you know what's been happening in Jerusalem these past days? (laughs) That's so ironic. (laughs) Because the only one who really knows what's going on in those past days is Jesus. And yet they're here saying, are you the only one who doesn't know? And so they start explaining to him. And then Jesus turns around and says, Oh, you hard-hearted, foolish ones, don't you know that the Messiah had to come and suffer and die and that he would be raised again? And there's this beautiful moment where they're walking along and it says that Jesus started beginning with the law and the prophets and went through the whole, what we would call the Old Testament, showing how he was the fulfillment and the culmination of all that had been written. And I think perhaps the most beautiful of all is that they didn't realize who was sitting with them until they sat down and Jesus took the bread. He blessed it and he gave it out. I cannot put into words what communion is for you. The revelation of the, what Christ has done and what it brings us into. The partaking of his life that is captured in that moment. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's history. 
You know, I don't have time to actually unpack the wilderness journey. But I hope you're starting to understand Jesus isn't isolated from the history. He is Israel's history. In Exodus, when Moses is called to lead the people out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, God says to him, say to Pharaoh, let my son go. He's talking about Israel. And Israel was supposed to be the son. And he also says that they may come and serve me. So even in the early Exodus, there was this idea that there would be a chosen people that would be his servant, that would be his son, and become the blessing to the nations. And unfortunately, Israel never fulfilled it. Well, maybe unfortunate. <laughs> I think God always knew that it was never going to be fulfilled through them. But then we hear that Jesus becomes the son. And when he's taken into the wilderness, one of the things I hope you can see this morning is that just as Israel was taken into the wilderness and tested in their hearts whether they would humble themselves to know whether they keep their word or not, and then you see how history unfolds and how they never really were faithful. They never demonstrated faithfulness to God. They, in fact, became illegitimate sons by the way they lived. And yet here we see that Jesus is being identified as the beloved son. And then in the wilderness, even though it, Mark is frustrating in his scant detail of what takes place, yet he comes out and it, it just stamps that legitimacy of sonship on Jesus' life and the fulfillment of Jesus as the true Israel through whom the nations would be blessed. You see, God's plan never changes. When it gets to Joshua, Moses is dead. He says, Joshua, Moses is dead. Now go, carry on. Mission's the same, hasn't changed. You know, you guys are in transition. You don't have a senior pastor. Some of you may feel like you're a sheep without a shepherd, perhaps. And there'll be a time where God says, okay, time to move on. Because I haven't stopped my mission. I haven't stopped my purpose. My promises still stand. I am still Lord. I am still working. And it's a really good reminder that we are here like a wisp of fog. Here today, gone tomorrow, but the Lord stands forever. And it terrifies me. <laughs> it humbles me. And yet it fills me with an incredible joy that God, yet though we are like a wisp of fog, has created us before the foundation of the world. He knows your goings out and comings forth. He knits you in his mother's womb. He is the master architect of every one of your lives. He knows what you can handle. He knows what you can't. He knows your weaknesses, your failings. He's not bothered by it. He's not surprised. You can't surprise him. You're not going to do something and, and him suddenly go, oh no, what happened? <laughs> He's okay with it. He's fine. In fact, he dealt with your sin at the cross. Do you know you're fine? You're okay with him. God's fine with you. You're fine just as you are. Now, don't mistake that for meaning that you can just be complacent and live the way you, you care to live. No, no. The reason he gave you grace was to empower you to walk out the life that you have now been given as a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
Because what the flesh cannot do, He has given us the Spirit to accomplish the righteousness for which He intended for His people to walk. This is the Jesus through whom and by whom all things have been created and whom we've been engrafted into and how we now become His representatives on earth as He is in heaven. Because He says, just as He is, so are we in this world. Have you ever thought, just as He is, so you are in this world? So then we have the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And I'm going to wrap it up in this place in about 10 minutes. But after coming out of the wilderness, he hears of John the Baptist's death. And so he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. So after unpacking all that it was said in the Old Testament Scripture and all that it could say and that it does say about who Jesus is, and Jesus comes and pronounces that the kingdom of God is near, you've got to ask, why on earth do people have to repent? What does that even mean? Because if he is the king and he is reigns and, this is, and if it is clear that everything that is happening is identifying him as the servant of the Lord, the coming of Yahweh to redeem his people, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, if this is made clear, why is it that he has to re- preach a message of repentance? Well, there's probably two things going on here. Firstly, we have to adjust what we think, have a new frame of thinking about what we think the kingdom of God is. They certainly had to. Because you know what they were expecting? A mighty warrior, just as God has been betrayed with the Exodus, to come in and wipe away the enemies, to get rid of the unrighteous, and to establish Israel as a nation once again in a political way. And yet you read on in the Gospels and none of that's happening. No, no, the kingdom of God is being expressed as healing the sick, delivering people from demonic possession, walking on the water, the authority that he commands over creation, opening the eyes of those who are blind, giving speech to those who cannot speak, giving ears to hear those who cannot hear, feeding the multitudes with a meager seven or five loaves, and not just to the people of Israel, but to a whole Gentile community, breaking and violating every Jewish idea of clean and unclean you can speak of. He raised the dead. And just when they think, my God, my God, who is this with such power? He turns his head toward Jerusalem and he goes to the cross. What is the nature of this kingdom? I hope in this year that you'll get to see more and more of what that is. But the power God commands over creation, over the things that truly do keep us in bondage, over sickness and death, the things that cause us pain and suffering. Jesus comes and he says, this is what the reign of God is, looks like. I don't know if you've ever thought of the kingdom of God, but if you consider it as a place that we go to when we die, I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps you do not understand what the kingdom of God is. And maybe that's in the wording, because kingdom for us triggers off this idea of a geographical place, a space, and, and 
perhaps some of the fault of the evangelical Protestant tradition, is that we've taken the virgin birth and we've taken the death and resurrection of Christ and we've completely forgotten what's in the middle. So we get our ticket to salvation and we're off. No, God didn't save you just so you could disappear. If that was true, you wouldn't be here. (laughs) No, he left you with a mission. And then he says, repent. Now, for many of us, particularly some of those who have been exposed to things like the Church of England, Anglican Church, who have a prayer book in the midst, do they talk about repentance in their communion as a time where you express your contrition and remorse for sins committed and you seek forgiveness? Sometimes that's what we do in communion. And that is a legitimate, legitimate expression of repentance. But do you know what? That's not what Jesus is saying here. When he's saying repent, he's saying you need to change the entire way you think and believe because God is here, the rain has come and he is doing a new thing and if you want to be a part of it, you're going to have to drop the way you think life works and pick up on what I'm saying. (laughs) This is what repentance means. And so... I'm coming to you today and saying we need to repent because <laughs> we don't think right. We don't have it all sorted out. We don't understand the ways of God. It's not that we might not be tracking in sin and wrong, but the reality is that we all need an upgrade. We need to see differently. We need to think differently. How many of you are loving your enemies with all the love of your heart right now? <laughs> yeah. Well, before you can get there, you need to repent which means you actually need to have a change of perspective because you cannot understand how that's even possible to love your enemies. I can't. I certainly know when I first heard that, I thought, how on earth do you even get there? And this is the one of the things that we always trip up on. We think it's up to us. We think that somehow we've been saved and then we have to work ourselves up in our strength and our might and our energy to fulfill the commands of God and therefore fall under the law again. As if you have to earn your place with God by demonstrating that you are being faithful. And the irony is he put that to death on the cross. When you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death and buried with him, not just to remain there, but that you might be raised to newness of life, that you would walk under the power of the Holy Spirit and manifest his love, his mercy, his righteousness. And this is not something you can do because have you ever tried to be patient while driving around Perth? Yeah, you know what I mean. You know you don't have it in you. And when we get to that point, see the problem is we get to that point, we think, I don't have it in me. And we stop. Not realizing that God is present, that his power is toward us. The power that raised Christ from the dead is always toward us. For those who believe the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the heavenly places and put all authority and power and dominion under His feet and He has raised you and seated you in that very place, you need to repent of what you think of yourself. You need to repent of thinking that you're a lowly sinner. Yes, we sinned, but God did not leave us there. He is not conscious of our sin because He put it on the cross. You need to start seeing yourself as the beloved You are the beloved of God. 
You are in Christ and He loves you with an everlasting love. He is not surprised by your weakness and your ways. He's not surprised that you feel like you can't do it. He's going, yeah, I know. Don't you get it? It's not about you. And don't hear me and think, oh, that means we can just be passive and it's all like, you know, just stand back and let Him all do it. No, no. But it just means that you are no longer relying on yourself to fulfill what God has called you to do. And so repentance is actually a delight because you don't have to rely on yourself. You've got a problem, you don't have to rely on your resources. You don't have to rely on thinking you're the one who should have to draw yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen. You don't have to rely on your strategies. I know what my strategies are like. <laughs> they don't really work. I've tried a pretty good life of living without him and uh, it just becomes a train wreck. You have to repent of thinking what you think repentance is. But you also have to repent of thinking how you hear the word. You're feeling a little nervous that someone's saying you to repent. Do you feel like, oh, the judgment is coming and the condemnation? It's a, no, repentance is a gift. For freedom, Christ set us free. So he's saying, repent of your thinking because you are free. And for freedom, I set you free. You have to repent of the way you hear Scripture. Because if you're hearing a God who is angry and condemning you and trying to make sure and slapping you to bring yourself into line, it's not God. The reason I talked about that good, good Father is because the biggest lie that's being sold is that God is not good. It's also your greatest challenge because the world presents you every reason, every reason to believe that God is not good. How else can he demonstrate how much he loves you outside of going to the cross at Calvary and dying for you that you might receive eternal life and he puts it on the table for everyone he says I have accomplished this all you have to do is believe in me and you are the beloved of God the tenderness and the love and the mercy that he looks upon you you're his child he knows your every waking and falling. He knows your every thought from afar. He is the architect of your life. <laughs> it may not look like it. <laughs> and perhaps you haven't been that great a contributor to helping him along the way. <laughs> but he will never lose hold of you. He has hemmed you in behind and before. He has your life in his hands. Can you yield to the grace of God and receive His love. Because when you do, just like Jesus called the beloved Son, think of what He endured. Think of what He went through. It didn't bother Him what people thought of Him. It didn't bother if people criticized Him. It didn't bother if they glorified Him. He endured the false accusations, the lashings, the beatings, he went to the cross because he knew he was the beloved son.
How about you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come for you in Jesus' name. I give you all the glory right now for what you have done for us. And I pray right now that you would release your love by the Holy Spirit. It says the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would open up the senses of the people in this place. They would not just know this in their head, but it would register in their heart. That it would penetrate to the depths of their being. That you would transform them from the inside out, just as you have promised. And that rivers of living water, the things that we thirst and hunger for, that you would actually release your rivers of living water in your people today. And you know the people who are crying out who have a particular need right now. I pray you bless them. Bless their lives. Bless their hearts, Lord. Let them know that you hear the cries of their heart. Bless them in their goings out and comings forth. Bless them. Heal their hearts. For you came to bind up the brokenhearted. This is the anointing of Christ who is here right now. He comes to bind up the brokenhearted. He comes to release the captives. If you are captive to anything, I declare to you right now that Jesus has broken everything, that you are free and free indeed, that if you are in prison, that the gates are open, that you can walk out in Jesus' name and you can step into the year of the Lord's favor. It is not just a year like a 365-day thing. This is a season of the year of the Lord's favor. And as the beloved, you are also the favored. But the favor of the Lord is upon you. You don't have to ask for it. It is there. Turn to the Lord with all your heart and He will come to you and abide in you and give you the strength and satisfy the deepest desires and longings of your heart. And may we glorify your name both now and forevermore.